Well, let me lead us in prayer. Loving Father, thank you so much that you speak to us by your word and we thank you for the excitement of the book of Acts and pray that as we look at it tonight, you would teach us about how you keep your promises and how we can be energised for mission. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you might be familiar with the TV series Mission Impossible if you were watching TV in the 1960s. Uh, For some of the rest of us, maybe it might be the movies uh, that were rebooted in the 1990s and continue to be produced. Um, Basically, as the secret agent receives the secret command, you hear the words, your mission, should you choose to accept it, and then we're given the message, and then at the end it says... This message will self-destruct in five seconds and blah, blah, blah. It usually does. The whole thing about this is that the mission seems to be impossible. That's why it's called Mission Impossible. But nonetheless, the person who's the special agent accepts the mission, gives it a crack, and most of the time the mission that is impossible turns out to be possible after all, and it's a great movie and we all go home. For the Apostle Paul, his mission certainly seems to be difficult, but is it impossible? He's a man who started his life as a Jewish zealot, and his whole job was to try and eradicate all of this Jesus cult, these people who wanted to follow Jesus. And he went from town to town persecuting Christians until he was given a mission that he could not refuse to accept. And that was that Jesus said to him, I'm converting you and I'm commissioning you. Your job is to take the message that Jesus is the Messiah everywhere. And so he did. And we've seen over the last 17 weeks how the gospel has gone from Jesus saying, I'm going away now, to the point now where the Apostle Paul is about to head to Rome. And it's the last little instalment. It's the 18th week we've been looking at it. And, you know, in many ways, the journey of Paul mirrors the journey of Christ. You see, Paul's journey is a bit like Jesus' journey. Now, when you read the book of Acts, you need to realise it's written by the same guy who wrote the book of Luke. And in a lot of ways, Luke's history of Jesus from birth right through to the end is kind of paralleled with the life of Paul. And what we're going to see today, I think, in many ways, is a way that the Apostle Paul was able to come back from what looked like death to be alive. And because of that, he's able to continue his mission. You see, for Jesus, his death on Good Friday seemed like the end of the story. He was fully dead from his execution, and yet the greatest miracle of all occurred when he rose from the dead. And his mission was to beat death and to kill sin. And because of that, his mission impossible was actually possible. Paul's mission is closely related, but obviously different. I mean, he didn't deal with sin because it was already dealt with, but his job was pretty hard. He had to go out to the world, a world that did not know Jesus, a world that was in many ways hostile to Jesus, and then tell them about him. And today when we look at the final two chapters of the book of Acts, we're going to see what happens when Paul makes the journey to Rome, which is the greatest city of the world at the time. Now, I don't want to spoil the story for you because we'll read it together in a moment. But it's worth remembering that Paul has been promised by Jesus that he doesn't need to worry about anything because Jesus is is going to get Paul to Rome. 
Don't worry about it, Jesus says. I'm going to get you to Rome so you can testify before the most powerful man on the world that I am king. We know that. Paul knows that. And this mission to get him to Rome, it seems impossible. But Jesus' promise is clear. You see, for Paul, it must have sometimes seemed to be mission impossible. At least once he got on that ship from Caesarea, which was sort of on the coast from Jerusalem, all the way to Rome. And we're going to see in Acts chapter 27 one of the most remarkable journeys that you're ever going to encounter. It is a powerful display of just how it is that Jesus keeps his promises even when it's against all odds. And what's really strange about this is it's in so much detail. I've said this to you before when we've looked at the book of Acts, but sometimes it's kind of like, you know, and Paul goes away for three years and he comes back, boom, and that's it. And then other times it's kind of like we almost hear what he had for breakfast. It's, it, the detail is so great, and that's what we're going to get now as we look here at his journey. But we need this. It's in the Bible. It's for us. It's for our encouragement. So buckle up. Acts chapter 27 verse 1 begins this way. When the time came, we set sail for Italy. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was also with us. We left on a ship whose home port was Adramitium on the northwest coast of the province of Asia. It was scheduled to make several stops at ports along the coast of the province. Uh, already it's starting to go into a fair bit of detail, but buckle up, it's, it's worth the ride. But did you notice this? Historian Luke was there on the journey. He keeps saying, we did this, we did that. And because this is such an accurate description of what life was like on a boat in the first century, and, and historians have said, wow, he, he, it was like he was there, mm, surprise, it just gives that extra degree of validity to the history for the rest of the book of Acts and also the Gospel of Luke as well. Anyway, so he's there, he's on the boat, and Paul is in the boat as well under the supervision of a Roman officer. Remember, Paul is in chains, he's imprisoned, he's taken under guard back to, up, up to Rome so he can talk to Caesar. Anyway, verse 3. The next day when we docked at Sidon, Julius was very kind to Paul and let him go ashore to visit with friends so they could provide for his needs. Putting out to sea from there, we encountered strong headwinds that made it difficult to keep the ship on course. So we sailed north of Cyprus between the island and the mainland. Keeping to the open sea, we passed along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, landing at Myra in the province of Lycia. There, the commanding officer found an Egyptian ship from Alexandria that was bound for Italy. That'll work, Italy? Yep, Rome? That's the thing. So he put us on board. We had several days of slow sailing. We've all been there. And after great difficulty, we finally neared Cnidus. But the wind was against us, so we sailed across to Crete and along the sheltered coast of the island past the Cape of Salmoni. We struggled along the coast with great difficulty and finally arrived at fair havens near the town of Lacia. 
I tell you what, this whole journey just seems a little bit chaotic. It's like, have we got a plan? Well, we'll just sort of see where the wind takes us. And hopefully we'll eventually get to Rome. Uh, That's basically what we see here. They didn't have big diesel engines that they could fire up. They just had to get blown around. And that's what was happening. But they were about to encounter a big problem. And that was, they're getting close to winter. Apparently the deal is this. Don't sail in winter. Don't do it. Don't sail in winter. Go and snuggle up next to an open fire somewhere, right? But they were getting close to winter. Verse 9. We'd lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was so late in the fall. And Paul, the prisoner, spoke to the ship's officers about it. Men, he said... I believe there is trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, and danger to our lives as well. Now, this is not the first time that Paul's got his feet wet in a boat. Probably he's clocked up thousands of hours on vessels. He knows what he's doing. And so he says to these people who perhaps don't know what they're doing, listen, we're safe, we're in a port. Maybe it's not number one on TripAdvisor. Doesn't matter. Let's just go ashore and have winter here. Trust me. Verse 11. But the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul. What would he know? He's just a prisoner. And since Fair Havens was an exposed harbour, a poor place to spend the winter, bad coffee, most of the crew wanted to go on to Phoenix, farther up the coast of Crete and spend the winter there. Phoenix was a good harbour with only a southwest and northwest exposure. Yeah, it kind of makes sense in a sense. But Paul's warned them of danger and they ignore Paul. They ignored Paul's advice. And so they left the safe harbour to find a better harbour around the coast. And then this happened. When a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought they could make it. So they pulled up anchor and sailed close to the shore of Crete. But the weather changed abruptly, and a wind of typhoon strength, called a nor'easter, and what a nor'easter it was, burst across the island and blew us out to sea. You know, they were trying to hug the coast, and now they're in the middle of the sea. It's like, that's bad. The sailors couldn't turn the ship into the wind. I hadn't thought about that. So they gave up and let it run before the gale. They were just being pushed along at a fast rate of knots. We sailed along the sheltered line of a small island named Cowder, where with great difficulty we hoisted aboard the lifeboat being towed behind us. Then the sailors bound ropes around the hull of the ship to strengthen it. They were afraid of being driven across to the sandbars of Sirtis, off the African coast. So they lowered the sea anchor to slow the ship and were, given, and were driven before the wind. The next day, as gale-forced winds continued to batter the ship, the crew began throwing the cargo overboard. The following day, they even, threw, they even took some of the ship's gear and threw it overboard. The terrible storm raged for many days blotting out the sun and the stars until at last all hope was gone. Everyone on that boat pretty much knew that they were toast. This is serious. 
And we've given all this extra detail here because, you know, maybe the apostle, uh, maybe the Luke is thinking he's got a word count and he's got to try and pad it all out. I, I don't think so. I think he's saying we've got a rip-roaring yarn and I want you to know I was there and this was real and it was serious. And I want to slow down the story of the book of Acts for you to really see how dire it was. Because he says there, what is he says? All hope was gone. All hope was gone. That is a terrifying situation to be in. I wonder if you've been at the point where you would say of your life that all hope is gone. It's a terrible experience. Maybe it's the case that you also were subject to the so-called natural forces. I reckon right now there are thousands of people around our state within 100 kilometres of here who are, are, are at this point where they may be saying all hope is gone. The fire is raging. The large area tank, air tankers throwing all this stuff down on the ground and yet the fire keeps coming and they're scared and they're thinking, what hope do we have? And they're saying, when is there going to be rain? We just don't know. It is a terrible feeling to have no hope. And that's exactly what this crew was going through at this point here. All hope was gone. The big difference, though, is that one of their prisoners happened to be the guy that Jesus has said is going on a mission to Rome. And if they had perhaps listened to him a little bit earlier on, it might not have been so dire for them. What is Paul thinking at this stage? He's probably thinking, you know, last time I came up and sold them any, told them anything, they told me to shut up and get back there. So am I going to bother? Well, Paul's the kind of guy who sticks his neck out. He's done it time and time again, and he's been beaten up over and over again. I'm surprised he can still speak through his mouth because his teeth have been smashed out. And so he says, verse 21, we read that no one had eaten for a long time, and finally Paul called the crew together and he said, Men, you should have listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. I don't know if he's necessarily rubbing his nose, rubbing their noses in it or not, but he's saying, really, honestly, you should have. But if you had done that, you would have avoided all this damage and loss. But take courage. They've got no hope, but he says, take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though this ship will go down. For last night, an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. And what's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage. For I believe God. It will be just as he said. But we will be shipwrecked on an island. So it's kind of like, oh, the good news or the bad news? Well, he's given both. So it's going to be pretty dicey, but we're going to be safe. What did they do last time that Paul piped up? They said, get back in the hole. Shut up. I don't want anything to do with you. What would you know? You're a random prisoner. How would you know anything else? But Paul has said, I've got a message that's come to me from an angel, from the Lord. Will you believe it or not? 
And right there, as the waves are crushing over the gunnels, they needed to trust that Paul was in his right mind, that he did know a thing or two about sailing, but more than that, that he had heard from the one who blows the wind and the one who created the wind and the one who was in control of everything. And he says to them, the reason I know this is because I saw an angel. I wonder if you've imagined what it's like to see an angel. I I kind of think it's like those movies where an angel comes and you hear these harps. It's like, oh, isn't that lovely? There's an angel come. Well, why is it that whenever an angel comes, the first thing they say is, don't be afraid? Uh, Why is that the case? It's because I tell you what, if I was woken up in the middle of the night by an angel, I would be freaking out. It's like, ah! And the angel says, Jody, don't be afraid. Now, Paul, he's seen a few angels in his time, and he's like, all right, I've been here before. It's going to be okay. But when we come to Christmas this time and we say, oh, the angels appeared to the shepherds, and the angels appeared to Mary, and the angels appeared to Joseph, don't think they're kind of like little little harp sort of things like, don't be afraid. Whoa, okay. And The angel has appeared to Paul and he's saying, don't worry, I've got good news for you. Take courage. Now, I reckon at this point, all of those sailors have got to try and make a choice. Will they believe what it is that Paul has said to them? And what's the authority? An angel. Really? (laughs) You want me to believe this supernatural thing that's just kind of in your head? It's like, what else is in your head, crazy Paul? They've got to work out, are they going to trust what he said, that the supernatural is actually true? And when we grab the Bible and read the word of God, we have got to do a similar kind of thing. Because this is an old book. It's been written a really long time ago. What use has it got for today? What relevance does it have to our modern era? What meaning does it have for you and for me? We've got to trust the word of God. We've got to trust that prayer works. We've got to trust that there is such a thing as heaven and hell and repentance of sins. See, it was scary to see an angel. It was scary for them to see an angel. But Paul believed the angel. And we would do well to believe the word of God as well. But what about these sailors? What will they do? Well, let's read on. Verse 27. About midnight on the 14th night of the storm, we were being driven across the Sea of Adria. The sailors sensed land was near. They dropped a weighted line and found that the water was 120 feet deep. But a little later, they measured again and found it was only 90 feet deep. At this rate, they were afraid we would soon be driven against the rocks along the shore. So they threw out four anchors from the back of the ship and prayed for daylight. Then the sailors tried to abandon the ship. (laughs) We're out of here. They lowered the lifeboat as though they were going to put out anchors from the front of the ship. We're just going to go to the front of the ship and put out some anchors, aren't we? Yeah, lifeboat. Quick run, boys. But Paul said to the commanding officer and the soldiers, you will all die unless the sailors stay aboard. So the soldiers cut the ropes to the lifeboat (laughs) and they let it drift away. That's a turn of events, isn't it? These sailors wanted to chicken out and get on the lifeboats. And Paul says, you do that and you are running away from what the Lord has said. You do that and we are all going to die. Will they believe Paul? 
will they believe the Lord? And what do they do? They cut the ropes to the lifeboats. That's faith. That's when you do something really risky and tough to say, the Lord is telling me I need to cut the lifeboat. Are you serious? And they cut the lifeboat. They trusted in the Apostle Paul, who had spoke, who, who was speaking the word of God that was delivered to him by an angel. And I tell you what, a lot of the time when we need to trust God's word, it's like, are you serious? And you cut the lifeboat. And you know it's tough. But this is just one of many times when we know we must trust God. Because these soldiers obeyed the word. They obeyed the word. They trusted Paul. They trusted the angel. They trusted God. And Paul's leadership continued to have an influence. Verse 33, just as day was dawning, Paul urged everyone to eat. You've been so worried you haven't touched food for two weeks. Man, they must have been seriously worried. And he said, please eat something now for your own good, for not a hair of your heads will perish. And I reckon at this stage they're trusting Paul because they've already cut the boats free. And then Paul took some bread. He gave thanks to God before them all and broke off a piece and ate it. And then everyone was encouraged and began to eat. All 276 of us who were on board. And after eating, the crew lightened the ship further by throwing the cargo of wheat overboard. It's almost a little bit of a parallel of what Jesus did. He fed them. He fed his disciples. He fed the people. And here, kind of modelling himself on, on Jesus, he says, you guys need food. You're starving. Trust me. Eat. And so they did. And in fact, they were so trustworthy, they chucked the rest of the food off board. Well, what happens next? Well, we read that when morning dawned, they didn't recognise the coastline, but they saw a bay with a beach and wondered if they could get to shore by running the ship aground. So they cut off the anchors and left them in the sea. It's getting desperate. Then they lowered the rudders, raised the foresail, and headed towards shore. But they hit a shoal and ran the ship aground too soon. The bow of the ship struck fast while the stern was repeatedly smashed by the force of and began to break apart. The soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners to make sure they didn't swim ashore and escape. Uh-oh. Paul's a prisoner, isn't he? Yeah. What's going to happen? But the commanding officer, a good guy, wanted to spare Paul. So he didn't let them carry out their plan. <sighs> then he ordered all who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land. And then the others held onto planks or debris from the broken ship. So everyone escaped safely to shore. Yikes! What a story! Bottom line is Paul's promise came true. They're all standing on solid ground. And it was another near miss. Paul nearly got killed by the soldiers. That would have been a bit awkward. It was never going to happen, but feel the the tension. But the commanding officer wanted him saved, so they all were saved. But there's more good news. Chapter 28, verse 1. Once we were safe on shore, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. The people of the island were very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on the shore to welcome us. It's a lovely scene. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks and was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, bit him on the hand. The people of the island saw it hanging from his hand and said to each other, A murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, 
justice will not permit him to leave to live. But Paul took, took off the snake into the fire and was unharmed. <laughs> the people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw that he wasn't harmed, they changed their mind and decided he was a god. <laughs> Never a dull moment. This is action stuff. You can see why Paul, Luke, when he was writing his first draft of the book of Acts, thought, oh, I need to shorten some bits. Oh, I've got to keep all that stuff in. Of course he does. This is awesome stuff. But it continues, verse 7, near the shore we landed was an estate belonging to Publius, the chief official of the island, the, the head honcho of Malta. He welcomed us and treated us kindly for three days. As it happened, Publius's father was ill with fever and dysentery. Paul went in and prayed for him, and laying his hands on him, he healed him. And then all the other sick people in the island came and were healed. As a result, we were showered with honours. And when the time came to sail, people supplied us with everything we would need for the trip. (laughs) This is a trip to remember. And Paul the prisoner became the healer. God is with him. You're not an apostle. Don't expect the same thing to happen. Be careful when you're handling firewood, okay? And don't expect when you see someone that you can say, be healed and it will happen. Uh, Don't expect that. These are weird times, weird events. After all, Jesus has said to Paul, you're going to get to Rome, trust me. And it was all happening. And finally, the time comes. Verse 11, it was three months after the shipwreck, three months after the shipwreck, that we set sail on another ship that had wintered in the island, an Alexandrian ship with the twin gods as its figurehead. How ironic. Our first stop was Syracuse, where we stayed three days, and from there we sailed across to Regium. A day later, a south wind began blowing, so the following day we sailed up the coast to Patioli, and there we found some believers who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. Rome. Finally, they have made it. Paul knows that he's going to get there and he's got there. The Lord Jesus promised him that he'd make it there so he could preach to Caesar and now he's arrived. And we read verse 15 that the brothers and sisters in Rome had heard we were coming and they came to meet us at the forum on the Appian Way. Others joined us at the three taverns and when Paul saw them, he was encouraged and thanked God. You see what happens there? Paul is greeted in Rome by Christians. In fact, he's, you almost think that he's sort of greeted like a rock star. It's kind of like they already know him. And I think they do. Because these Romans have got something in the mail before from Paul. Paul's letter to the Romans. And you just kind of wonder whether or not they're standing there with copies waiting for an autograph. Unlikely. But still, get your head around the fact that they have experienced the ministry of the Apostle Paul through his writings and now he is there with them in, in, in the flesh, not just in the spirit. And he is really happy to see them. And we read now, verse 16, that when we arrived in Rome, Paul was permitted to have his own private lodging, though he was guarded by a soldier. He gets his own spot, his own house He's imprisoned in a house. He's not in kind of maximum security jail. He's there and he's allowed to have all these people pop in and see him. And he's allowed to do all this witnessing with this guy, this kind of captive audience. I mean, Paul is captive 
because there's a guard next to him, but the guard is captive to Paul, who's going to keep talking about Jesus. You wonder how many people are being converted through that exact scenario. And so Paul's there. He's in a new place. What does he do first? Where does he go first? First to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. We've done this before. He brings the Jews there. And so we read that three days after Paul's arrival, he called together the local Jewish leaders. He said to them, Brothers, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Roman government, even though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors. And he goes on to explain a bit more about it, and we know the details, so I'll skip a little bit. But the point is, he says he's going to the Jews first. And he says he's brought the Jews there so they'd know about Jesus. Verse 20. I asked you to come here today so we could get acquainted and so I could explain to you that I'm bound with this chain because I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. He wants them to know that the Messiah they're waiting for is already here. And his name's Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah they've been waiting for. Many Jews didn't recognise Jesus that way. But right now, there were some who did, and they were right there with him. And right here, we see verse 23, that a time was set, and on that day, a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. He explained and testified about the kingdom of God and tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures. Using the law of Moses and the books of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. He opened up the Old Testament and said, let me show you Jesus. Here and here, turn the page. Here and here, turn the page. Here and here. He showed them that Jesus is the one who completely fits the mould. And he was teaching them all day and night. How do you think those Jews reacted? Do you think they liked the message? Mm-hmm. Do you think they hated the message? Mm-hmm. Verse 24. Some were persuaded by the things he said, but others did not believe. Bottom line is that they were divided by the message. Have you ever seen that happen before? Maybe someone says to you, so what are you doing over Christmas? I'm going to church. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, and it's just one of the happiest days. You should come along with me. It would be great. And they say, you know, it's funny, but I've just had this kind of feeling that I need to check out Jesus. What time is it? Well, you can come at six o'clock and you can get a free sausage. Oh, yeah, on Christmas Eve. Or, or what about, what, when are your Christmas Day services? Oh, nine o'clock. Well, what's the address? And they turn up and they want to be here. Others would say, Christmas, are you serious? Christian, are you one of those bigots? You're thinking, this is going badly. And it doesn't really get any better. The same thing has completely different outcomes. One message with two different reactions, completely different reactions. This happens all the time. Paul wrote some letters to the church at Corinth. His second one that we've got in the Bible talks about this division like this. He says, Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. It's a smell. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. 
to those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? As we talk to people about Jesus, for some people it will be like when you go into the shed and a possum's died and you open the door and you think, ah, the stink, it's a stink that you can taste, that you can feel the smell, right? That horrible expression of aroma is what you will be to some when you talk to them about Jesus. But for others, it's kind of like when you open the door and you know that they've put on a roast. And the smell of garlic and rosemary and olive oil and sea salt and that, the, the, oh, yeah. That's the kind of thing, the same message. For some, it's a dead possum. For others, it's a lamb roast. The same thing, different reactions. And what we've got to do is just get the smell out. Some will love it. Some will think that we've stepped in something, okay? That's okay. That's what evangelism is like. That's what being a Christian in this world is like. And with that in mind, Paul reads something out from the Bible. Verse 25. And after that, they'd argued back and forth amongst themselves, these Jews. They then left with this final word from Paul as they're heading out the door. He says to them this, The Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through Isaiah the prophet, Go and say to these people, When you hear what I say, you won't understand. When you see what I do, you won't comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear and they've closed their eyes so their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. He quotes Isaiah chapter 6, one of the most often quote bits of the Old Testament in the New it's when the Lord cleanses the sin of Isaiah and he says to Isaiah, I've got a mission for you and that is you're going to tell people about me and people will not listen and all that's going to happen is the more you talk about me, the harder their hearts will be. And he thinks, wow, that's mission impossible. But off he goes. Isaiah's mission is destined to fail. The more he speaks, the harder their hearts in fact, their disobedience makes their hearts even harder. These people hate God, and the more that they hear about God, the more they don't want to know God. They are hardened, and they are hardened. But there's another time in the New Testament that Isaiah chapter 6 is quoted. It's quoted when Jesus talks about parables. I don't know if you've noticed this before. The most famous parable of all probably is the parable of the sower. You know, the farmer goes out and he sows some seed and really bad and a little bit better and not really good at all and then really, really good. And depending on where the seed falls, the reaction will be good or bad. And, and, and anyway, so he does this thing and everyone's there like, huh? Huh? They don't understand what Jesus is doing when he's saying a farmer goes out and sows the seed. They're like, huh? And But the disciples, of course they get it. Huh? Huh? They've got no idea. And they say, hey, Jesus, um, <clears throat> I know that we're supposed to get these things, but 
we didn't really get this stuff. Uh, can you explain it to us? Just, you know. Jesus, Mark 4.11 says, He replied, You are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything I say to outsiders so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And you know what he quotes? Isaiah 6. They will be ever seeing but not perceiving and ever hearing but not understanding. Jesus also quotes Isaiah 6. People who have rejected God hear about Jesus and say, I hate that. And the message just hardens their hearts. The more they hear, the less they believe. And now Paul is there and he's preaching to them. And what happens? They get up and they leave. And he says, Isaiah 6. Because that is what happened. And with that in mind, he then says, So I want you to know that this salvation from God has also been offered to the Gentiles and they will accept it. First for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. And that is what happened. Time and time again, he's gone to the Jews and they've said no. And then he's gone to the Gentiles and they've said yes. Jews have rejected Jesus, but others accepted him. And even though Paul is in chains for the gospel, the gospel is not in chains. And so we get the last two verses of the entire book of Acts, which says, for the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. And that's the end of the story. It's kind of an exciting end. It's like, so what happened to Paul? Well, so what happened next? Well, it's kind of like, doesn't matter. It's kind of like the next chapter. We're sort of in the next chapter. The gospel is going out. The mission impossible has happened. And this mission impossible continues to bring fruit to the glory of God. Many Jews rejected Jesus as the Christ, but some accepted him. And many Gentiles, that's us, have heard the gospel of Jesus and have accepted him as well. Mission Impossible is a success. How does that make you feel? How does the success of Paul's Mission Impossible rev you up for mission? Well, that is the chew on this question, that as you have dinner tonight... Turn to the person next to you as you're chomping away in your food and ask them, how does Paul's success in his impossible mission bring you enthusiasm, rev you up for mission? Let me pray. Loving Father, we thank you so much that you preserved Paul so he could preach in Rome and that through his remarkable ministry, we ourselves here in Jamboree 2,000 years later have heard the gospel and believe in Jesus as the Messiah and are now part of the kingdom of God. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you might give us great courage in the next couple of days as we invite people to church for Christmas, that we ourselves would recognise that it's not us they're rejecting or accepting, but it's you. And that your message is powerful and it is just that aroma of life to those who are being saved. And we pray, Father, that you might give us this courage that through Christmas we would see many people come to know Jesus as Lord. And for us to have a fresh reminder of just how good it is to know the baby who became a man who died for us and has risen in triumph.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.